to mother's anxiety about where things are beginning to go wrong for this wedding. Do you notice how Jesus responds when Mary comes to him with a panicked, anxious report of how things are just about to come undone? Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Now, to hear Jesus addressing his mother as woman, no matter how gently uh, or warmly it's said, really has an awkwardness to it, an abruptness to it, that can't help to our ears sounding just a little bit condescending, don't you think? But I actually don't think that there's anything either dismissive or aloof in the way in which Jesus speaks to his mother on this occasion. Actually, there are a bunch of situations throughout John's Gospel where Jesus addresses a female in this way. I've got them down there listed, a bunch of them for you. We won't be able to have a chance to look at them now, but I'd encourage you to have a look up and read those other uh, occasions, and I think you'll see what I mean. Jesus never speaks this way out of annoyance or some kind of condescending aloofness. In fact, in each case that Jesus addresses someone this way, Jesus is inviting the woman in question to press pause on her own anxieties for a moment to hear what Jesus himself has to say. It's a moment in which, in every occasion, in which Jesus is inviting the particular woman to have a greater understanding of something that he hasn't yet revealed of himself to others. I wonder if you've ever had one of those moments, maybe you've had a rubbish day, a terrible week, you've met up with your best friend and it's really just a good occasion, a good excuse to download on them, to dump on them all the stuff that's been stacking up in you. And so you basically just let out an anxious rant about how everything's been going wrong and you don't stop until they perhaps just say, Steve, they address you in a way that perhaps is a little bit unexpected but causes you to pause for a moment and to shift focus from your own anxieties to what it is that they're about to say. That's what Jesus is doing here. Woman, Jesus says, my hour hasn't yet come. What exactly was Jesus getting at with a cryptic remark like that? My hour hasn't yet come. My hour isn't yet Sadly, no doubt due to her own anxious distraction about the wine shortage, Jesus' mother doesn't seem to even have paused for a moment to wonder at what Jesus' weird words might have meant at this point. I wonder if you ever engage with Jesus that kind of way. You come to Jesus, perhaps it's in prayer, in your thought, in reading of Scripture, and you come with a whole bunch of anxieties, worries, things that are going on in your own head that you download on Him And you don't even pause to wonder for a moment what Jesus himself, what promises Jesus himself might speak to you from the scriptures. You don't stop to think what words of comfort or warning or encouragement Jesus himself might speak. We just kind of view him, treat him as a sounding board in which we dump our anxieties and hope that they will somehow get dealt with. Well, it seems that Jesus' Jesus' mother is kind of engaging with him in a similar kind of way. Jesus' mother was so constrained by her own most pressing anxieties that she continues just speaking past Jesus without registering his words to her at all. What, What Jesus might have meant by that mention of his hour, we'll come back to a little bit later on and see if we can make some sense of it. But first of all, let's see where Mary continues on. Pretty quickly, Jesus' mother continues in verse 5. I'll read from verse 5 again uh, to the end of this particular event. 
verse 5. Jesus' mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so that they, are, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, first off, it's worth noticing here that what we see Jesus performing in this passage isn't actually even labelled a miracle at all. Did you notice that? No mention of miracles in the whole passage. It's spoken of as being a sign. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus has done something miraculous. Uh, he's somehow, we don't know where, the passage doesn't tell us anything about when the miracle occurred. It just tells it by the time it got to the, the mouth of the, the master of the banquet, what was once water was now wine. We don't get told anything about the actual mechanics of the miracle. But to John, that's largely beside the point, whether it was miraculous or not. What matters to John who records this is that Jesus performed a sign. And Jesus' actions here point us forward to some other more important reality. Signs, that's what signs are, isn't it? Signs are never significant in and of themselves. Signs only draw their significance because of what they are trying to draw our attention to, what they're pointing our attention to. And that means that the details that are described in tonight's passage, they're not only just coincidental historical details that record actually what happened, they're also details that illustrate that signify some deeper meaning to Jesus' actions on this occasion. Now, on the surface level, it might appear as if Jesus has simply caved or consented to doing exactly what his mother had asked of him. After all, there was no wine, now there is wine, problem solved. How much more do you really need to dwell on it? But actually, I think there's a lot more going on in Jesus' response to his mother, how he goes about responding to her, than might first strike us as we just skim through this passage. After all, Jesus isn't simply solving a liquor supply problem on this occasion, is he? Presumably, there would have been a whole stack of empty wine jars already stacked neatly behind the bar. They'd been drinking probably for a couple of days. There had been wine. It was now gone. Why not just miraculously refill those now empty wine jars rather than using, reusing some random water jars left over at the side of the property that had been left over from some previous ceremonial washing ritual? Why would Jesus use those ceremonial jars? Why this odd decision by Jesus to first fill the ceremonial washing jars with water full to the brim and only then to follow it up with providing the much-needed wine? It kind of seems like a needlessly complicated multi-step process, don't you think? Could have made it a whole lot easier. 
And then there's the question of the wine's quality. Did you notice that? After observing that the guests have already drunk too much wine by this point in the wedding, a bemused banquet master quizzes the negligent bridegroom about why on earth he waited so long before bringing out the best wine, the choice wine. It's basically saying, no one's even going to notice how good this wine is now. You've left it to... What explains your actions? Now, of course, the poor clueless bridegroom wouldn't have had the faintest idea where this premium wine had come from. And so what we get at the end of this event is pretty much everyone involved, other than the servants, everyone involved in these events is just left rather flustered and confused about what on earth has been going on. It doesn't seem like a whole lot of clarity has been reached through Jesus' actions at this wedding. What exactly is this strangely secret, this strangely covert and convoluted miracle actually supposed to be signifying? What is it a sign of? I think actually in the very next chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 3, we perhaps get a little bit of a clue as to what Jesus was playing at by first filling the water jars that were used for ceremonial washing and only then performing the bridegroom's responsibility of providing wine. Now, in chapter 3, we find a group of disciples arguing over whether it is Jesus or John the Baptist who had the greater authority to purify and to wash clean God's people. Both Jesus' disciples and John the Baptist, they were both busy baptising people, and the disciples were squabbling over who had the greater authority to do this cleansing work of God's people. And John the Baptist settles the debate about whether it's he or Jesus who is the greatest by identifying himself as the best man and Jesus as a bridegroom. Listen to how John the Baptist describes Jesus here. Uh, These verses, hopefully they'll be on the screen. I'll read them out for us. John the Baptist says, The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, says John the Baptist, and is now complete. He, Jesus, must become greater. I, John the Baptist, must become less. Now, in identifying Jesus as the bridegroom, John wasn't just simply picking a random illustration out of nowhere to explain why Jesus was superior to himself. No doubt John actually had in mind passages from the Old Testament, like this one from Isaiah 62. It was read out for us a little bit earlier, uh, but we'll have it up there on the screen as well. The prophet Isaiah wrote of the day on which the Lord will take delight in you. As a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. That is, in the courtyards of my temple, the temple sanctuary. Now, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah here was looking forward to a day in which God himself would visit his people and play the role of bridegroom to them, hosting a wedding banquet in the temple, in the very courtyards of the temple sanctuary itself. A banquet at which he'd pour out the choicest new wine in celebration, in delight over his precious beloved bride 
his people, Israel. It's no accident, I don't think, that in the second part of tonight's passage, we find Jesus visiting that very wedding reception venue in which Isaiah had imagined God's wedding feast with his people would take place. Have a look with me at um, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, Isaiah had prophesied that it would be in the temple sanctuary, in the temple courtyards, that God would play the bridegroom and pour out wine in celebration of his bride, of his people. And then we read in chapter 2, verse 13 of John's Gospel, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here, Jesus, the bridegroom, the one who John the Baptist identifies as the bridegroom, arrives at his father's house, the temple, at the wedding reception venue that Isaiah had spoken about, only to find the temple courtyards, the sanctuary courtyards, not overflowing with choice new wine, but as defiled and decrepit as a livestock market. Certainly not a fitting venue for a wedding between God and his precious bride, his people. So taking a whip of cords, Jesus sets about cleansing the courtyards, getting rid of all that defiled them that made that temple courtyards unclean. The bridegroom had arrived at the wedding venue, ready to delight in his precious bride, but he finds neither his people nor the temple even remotely prepared to receive him. And isn't that how John's Gospel started a couple of weeks ago? You might remember that the the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, but even his own people did not recognise him, did not receive him. The bridegroom has turned up, but the bride isn't ready. And friends, I think that's what was actually on Jesus' mind back at the start of our passage in verse 3, when Jesus had told his mother, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was actually thinking ahead to his own wedding day, the time in which he would act as a bridegroom towards his people. See, Jesus was unwilling to play the role of a bridegroom to God's people, pouring out the new wine of God's blessing upon them, until he had first completely washed and cleansed them, making them pure and worthy objects of God's delight and affection. Before the bridegroom could delight over his bride, Israel, God's people, needed to be cleansed and washed and made presentable and clean. And I think that's what was going on when Jesus first fills those stone jars full to the brim of water, those ceremonial washing jars. He does that first before he acts like the bridegroom and pours out the choice celebratory wine. Actually, it's not until the night of Jesus' own arrest, the very night before his death and crucifixion, that Jesus finally acknowledges that his hour has come. Uh, Up on the screen, you'll find these few verses from John chapter 13, at the other end of John's Gospel. We read there, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew 
that the hour had come for him to leave this world. goes on to speak about how he would leave the world by loving his people by dying for them. And then it goes on to describe how Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. No, said the Apostle Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, unless I cleanse you, you will have no part with me. And you might remember that then Peter says, "Radio, we'll go ahead, go to town, wash all of me. Uh, and Jesus says, you're, you're already clean. I've already made you disciples. I've already made you, my people, clean. Jesus recognises that his hour has finally come to first wash, cleanse and purify those that he loves from all their guilt, sin and shame so that he might also lavish his fullest delight and affection upon them with the same kind of intensity that a bridegroom might delight over his bride at a wedding feast that's overflowing with the finest of wines. Everyone there to celebrate it. Friends, this first sign, as odd as it might seem when we first read it, is a little bit of a summary, actually, of the whole of John's Gospel. The man who comes to first cleanse, to wash, to purify, so that he might delight over his precious people, as if they were his bride. That's the whole storyline of John's Gospel, what Jesus came to do. Uh, When Jesus' mother asked him to play the bridegroom's role at that wedding in Cana and to somehow figure out where they were going to get extra wine from, Jesus' mother wasn't asking too much of him. She was asking too little. She comes to Jesus anxiously asking him to fix a catering blunder, to avoid a, a social faux pas, to somehow correct a hospitality mishap. And it's striking that that Jesus actually deals very graciously with those controlling anxieties that had gripped his mother. He doesn't brush them aside dismissively. He doesn't belittle her for that which had gripped her in anxiety. And there's perhaps a comforting lesson there about the narrowly focused anxieties that we often pepper Jesus with. I don't know if you think about the last five things that you brought before Jesus, that you committed to him in prayer. Often, they're not of the most groundbreaking, world-shattering significance, and yet he doesn't despise them. I often find myself so focused upon the anxieties of my week, the anxieties that I pour out to Jesus. Often, they're not even anxieties that are my anxieties, right? Sometimes they're even just other people's anxieties that I've allowed myself to get kind of caught up in as well. And I get so caught up in bringing those to him that I pay little attention to what he himself is saying to me, just as Mary had failed to do. Yet Jesus has set his heart and mind upon achieving something far more glorious, far more breathtaking and wonderful for us than we typically often even think to ask of him. Far from waiting in the wings, just content to play understudy to our own failed plans and projects, Jesus has his heart set upon making himself our bridegroom. Jesus has his heart set upon being the one to cleanse us so that we are worthy of God placing his fullest delight in us. Jesus has set his heart upon being the one 
in whose intimate delight we ourselves will find ourselves complete and loved. Friends, this week, don't stop bringing your smaller anxieties to Jesus. Uh, Sometimes he deals graciously with us in the ways that we would never expect. But please also, pause to listen to Jesus when he says that what he has come to do, what he is still working to do and achieve for us, is far more wonderful than just the answer to the immediate pressing concerns and anxieties that perhaps have most gripped us. Jesus came to change us, to transform us, so that we might be worthy of the God who created the universe to place his full delight in us in the same kind of way that a bridegroom might delight in his bride. That's truly wonderful, isn't it? We'll see how that plays out over the course of our time in John's Gospel. But let's pray. Uh, If you do have any questions uh, or things that you want to um, quiz about from the passage, uh, please don't forget to feel free to SMS those things through uh, if you would like. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we confess that so often we are gripped with our own anxieties. Sometimes, Father, we're overwhelmed even just with the anxieties of others. We thank you, Father, when we bring them to you, you don't dismiss us, you don't despise us, you don't turn them aside, but at the same time, Father, we, we give you great thanks and praise for the reminder this evening that we've had that Jesus came to be far more than just an understudy to our own failed plans and purposes, but that he came to first wash and cleanse us, but not just to leave it at that, to cleanse us so that we might be worthy of being the objects of your full and complete delight and joy. Teach us, Father, by your Spirit to rest in that knowledge this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.